Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to gather together as your children, those who have turned to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as Savior. We've come to you in humility, and you've accepted us by grace. And we thank you so much that we didn't have to earn our way with you whatsoever. We thank you for your unconditional love, your grace and mercy. We thank you for all the little blessings you give us in our lives that show us signs of your goodness. And most of all, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who you willingly gave up to be a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Father, help us never be familiar with this amazing truth. We ask your blessing to be upon this message. Have your spirit guide us and teach us. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Well, as you can see, we're going to have a part two of Sunday's lesson, With God All Things Are Possible. I was just thinking before service what a wonderful phrase that is to just stare at. With God All Things Are Possible. The relief that that should give us all um, regarding any part of life. Today's lesson will largely be review, so I encourage you to sit back and listen. Um, you know, relax, maybe don't take as many notes today. Uh, absorb what the Spirit's trying to get across, what the message is. And I think what you'll also see today is a few key points from Sunday's lesson that you may have missed because they were not on the board. Uh, the Spirit's going to bring those up and also a few new points for us today regarding this subject. So we've been noting the personal nature of God's call on us. It's so personal that God calls each of his sheep by name. I was thinking of that line from the shack um, where the father says, I'm especially fond of you. And, and I was also thinking of our church as I'm sitting in the back office listening to different people come in. And I was thinking how different every single one of us is. I mean, we could, we could say... Pick, pick anyone in the church, we could be like, they're exact opposites. And God is especially fond of every single one of us for, for your uniqueness, the way he made you, obviously. And we tend to forget that. And one sign of that, or one reminder of that, is that he calls each of his sheep by name, which you can't get more personal than that, especially when you're, you're not dealing with a small number. And God doesn't forget anyone as man would. So God treasures each name, which really represents a soul, each soul that's willing to humbly turn to him. And we've been noting our great shepherd, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and his caring ways for his sheep, as in John chapter 10. And God even designed nature and various animals to reveal our own need to be led by the Great Shepherd, by our Creator. So, you know, this just came up the other morning. Um, I'm looking out my window, and I watch a group of turkeys in my backyard. Close to 50 of them ventured towards the bird feeder and picked at the leftovers on the ground. And, you know, you know the turkeys aren't very smart. That's a pretty good analogy with sheep. You know, they just come around, they, they, 
meander around. They're selfish. They've got their heads down, picking at, you know, the grass, picking on each other once in a while. And there was one turkey, which I'm guessing was the papa turkey, who was mature in his colors, had his fans, uh, feathers fanned out, and was strutting around as the clear leader of the family. Here he is on the board. Only one, only this guy, with 50 other turkeys around, living for self, let's put it that way. Consumed with their own, eating their own territory, whatever. And here he is standing there just like this. As all the other turkeys pecked at the ground for food, he didn't even look down once. I watched him probably for five minutes. He didn't look down at the ground once. Forget grabbing food for himself. He was keeping his eye on the family and out for dangers around them. And as the turkeys began to clear out and move to the next yard, he stood watch, observing his children moving on, guarding their path, if you will. He just stood there like that. And then finally, a few turkeys out of the 50 came by, the late stragglers. And as they walked by Papa Turkey, he chased them, pecking at their behinds, as if to say, why are you guys late? Stay with the family. He did that to no other turkeys of the 50. He let them go. It was, he was just standing post. And then these last few stragglers, he had to get in line, so to speak, lovingly chastising them by name, if you will, not forgetting one of them, not letting one of them go or stay behind. He made sure they all went ahead of him first. So it was an interesting visual aid that God gave me through that. And so the shepherd and sheep analogy is quite revealing of our relationship with God in many ways, as many of you know. But regardless of necessary times of discipline, God never forgets the name of any of his sheep. Not one, not once. And lately we've been seeing this in John 10, verse 3. Go in your Bibles to John 10, verse 3. so fun when God gives you these little visual aids when you're least expecting it to even, you know, and the lesson is like right in front of your face. And thank God he makes it that obvious, right? John 10, 3. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So the Lord's talking about himself as the great shepherd, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. On the board, we saw that by name means that Jesus, our great shepherd, has called every individual personally. Our calling is not a group calling. It's absolutely precise based on the heart of the individual. Most of you can probably remember that moment when he called you individually. And it was personal. Like he got your attention somehow. He rang that bell in your head and said, I'm the one. And that's, that's very personal. Like that's, um, he doesn't do it the same for every single person, the same way. Um, we should relish and rejoice in the fact that he's so, so personal with us. Uh, why does he even think of us, right? We, we went over that a few weeks ago. Why did you even cons consider me, Lord? 
But he does, and he does it in a personal way through the Holy Spirit. We also saw the sheep Jesus calls are those that the Father in heaven instructed him to call. Uh, Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly, and the Father prepared the sheep in advance for his Son. So look at John 17, verse 6. John 17, 6. Jesus said, I have manifested your name, talking to the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. doesn't get any clearer than that. So on the board, we synthesized John 10.3 and John 17.6. Jesus calls each sheep the Father has given him by name. And then on Sunday, the Spirit brought out the idea about the book of life and how that relates to this personal calling upon each of us. And many of you know the Bible speaks of a book of life in which the names of all the saved are written. And it's a book that existed before human history even began. Once again, pointing to our all-knowing God. On the board, the book of life. Believers' names are already written in the book of life, according to Philippians 4.3. And the book of life contains the names of all those believers elected by God from the creation of the world, even. And that's a quote from Revelation 17.8. We're not going to turn to these verses tonight, but you can look them up on your own later on if you want. But the Bible says believers' names are already written in the book of life, Philippians 4.3. Um, in fact... They were already written in that book from the creation of the world before any man was even created. Revelation 17, 8. So we can fairly say that God the Father gave his son, the great shepherd, the list of the names in that book to call. And as a faithful servant, Jesus calls each one by name, each of those that the Father elected. Remember, the Father draws each person to him. Then the Spirit asked us to reflect on Sunday. Whom does God elect? Whose name is in this book of life? Ultimately, only God knows all the names in that book. Ultimately, those whom God elected were those who would turn to Jesus in humility. Those who, whom God elected were those who would turn to Jesus in humility. And those who turn to Jesus in humility are those whom God elected. This is the conundrum that a lot of theologians struggle with, the um, supernatural coexistence of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. But God knew who would believe. God knew who would humbly turn to his son. And so he elected them before creation even. So on the board, we reviewed these basic truths about election on Sunday. God chooses whomever he desires. There are no mandates that man can impose on him on the subject of salvation. Nobody can force their way in. No one can demand salvation. God chooses whom he desires to choose. He's sovereign. Every believer has already been chosen even before they repent and believe in time. 
Again, in other words, God knew who would repent and believe in time. And third and final, and this kind of is where our focus is, repentance is a heart issue, as is faith in Christ. We are not sin counters. We are saved by grace through faith. So this last point has been a key to our discussion, the last couple lessons, about saving the sinner, saving any sinner, of which we all fall into that category. If we're not careful, these simple, pure truths on the board can be overanalyzed and corrupted by human rationalism, as can any doctrines that get overanalyzed and taken out of context. So there's a lot of uh, theologians out there, and there's a lot of branches of theology, and those points on the board, you could probably find five or ten different viewpoints on those points. Straying one way or the other, you know, um, maybe taking some scripture out of context, maybe over, overanalyzing it, maybe saying it's not for today, as we saw from Sunday's lesson. But man often gets in the way of God's word, of just taking it for what it says in context. And they morph things into doctrines of demons. They sound good. They sound very intelligent. But they're doctrines of demons because they stray from the truth. And many times the plainly stated truth. On the board we were reminded in 1 Timothy 4.1, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So this is like a common thing that's going to happen, especially in the end times. And, you know, who knows, maybe all this theology and all this intellect, intellectualism we have now and even technology might have a part in it is leading to more and more of these doctrines of demons. More and more of, listen, I don't even have to read my own Bible anymore. I've got these 10 theologians that did it for me. So you just turn from relying on the Word of God to relying on someone's viewpoint of the Word of God. And while some of it might be good, what did you just do? You just said, I don't have to do this myself. I don't have to develop my own convictions between me and God and what His Word says. I don't have to do that. I've got these guys. And now you're in a boatload of trouble, even if these guys are right, because you don't have your own convictions, right? We've been learning how important that is. And also the importance of keeping things in context. So we were given some specific uh, perspective on doctrines of demons on Sunday. And the Spirit used questions to lead us to certain conclusions on how Satan works on the board regarding doctrines of demons. What's the best way to counterfeit something? Well, we know you want to keep it really, really, really close to the truth, the original. And also make it look attractive at the same time. Where are true godly doctrines found? We know that's in the Word of God. So where do you think the demons are going to go? As intelligent as they are, much more intelligent than us, where do you think they're going to go to twist things into the doctrines of demons? They're going to quote the Word. They're going to quote the Word. Just like Satan did, tried to do, to the Lord in Matthew 4 to deceive him. But he, he was no match for the Lord, obviously. But they keep it terribly close to the real thing. And we have to be 
on God. That's why we're constantly in training. You don't see God tell us to read the Bible once and you're, you're good, right? If you get through the whole thing, you're good. You got it. Why are we commanded to learn the word daily? Because we're under constant attack of deception. And unless we keep the word in context and we're feeding our souls like that and we're coming to our own convictions, we will be deceived. By the next you know, claim, even Christian claim, we'll be deceived by some doctrine of demon that quotes a heck of a lot of scripture. So, remember, our Lord is our great shepherd also, and he's got our backs. He's watching over us as the kingdom of darkness tries to deceive us, kind of like Papa Turkey. He's watching over us the whole time. And if we remain humble in his word, then his spirit protects us from deception. And we have to trust that. Uh, what's our part? Stay humble in the word. Right? Read the word in context. Stay humble. Read the word in context. Stay humble. You don't know as much as you think you know. Right? Keep that humble attitude. And if you do that, he's got your back. Because you're submitting. And the Spirit's going to uh, alert you when necessary. So we have to trust him and trust um, that truth. So pastor mentioned on Sunday an entire group of so-called rightly dividing Christians who wrote on a pastor's social media wall that Jesus was not speaking to us in the church. So we can, you know, don't have to pay attention to all the red letters in the Bible. And God already dealt with, with us on this over the last year or two, really. But they twisted and overly divided the truth, even cutting our very Lord and Savior's words out of the picture. Just think about that for a minute cutting our own Lord and Savior's words out of the picture as unnecessary for us. And here's a good example of taking Scripture out of context. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 15, 24, where these people created a whole doctrine out of one Scripture. Matthew 15, 24. But Jesus answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, there it is. It's right there. Read it, right? Jesus came only for the Jews. It's right there. It, I was thinking it's kind of like how the media today will present what they want to present with their agenda. So they'll have a, a certain thing that they broadcast but what's the context of that thing? Like, where did it come from? You know, did, you, did they just pick a part out of something else, which is usually the case? So the whole kingdom of darkness is obviously at work. The system is at work to lead people the way Satan wants to lead people, basically away from the truth. But it's the same thing with this one verse. Look, Jesus said it. It must be true. That's it. Case closed. But in what context did he say that verse? You know, context is everything. How many times do you discover, if you read something in context, that maybe something was said as a joke? Maybe something was said in sarcasm? Maybe something was said sincerely, but then there was a correction made for the group? I don't know, right? It could be a million things. And so this is the great danger, as we claim to know the Word of God, taking one verse like this and saying this is 
This is it right here. And these people did that without looking at the verses around this verse. While pastors taught us in the past that Jesus truly was sent for the Jews first, Jesus never excluded the Gentiles from his plan for salvation, as the context goes on to tell us. Look how Jesus went on to deal with this Gentile woman, and it's a wonderful example of how his words are for all of us, by grace, for all who will humbly bow down to him. Look at verse 25. So Jesus said, I came only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Oh, Gentile woman, by the way, Oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. If we stopped at verse 24, then we miss out on the fact that his words are for all of us. They're healing, healing to anyone who will bow down to him as master. And as came out on Sunday, where did this woman learn that Jesus was the one to turn to for a miracle? Could it be she heard about him or maybe even heard him preach personally? Heard his words, in other words the same words that we get to see in the four Gospels. So these so-called rightly dividing Christians took one scripture out of context to cut Jesus' words out of the church age that we live in. And it's pretty crazy if you think about it because Jesus is the one who started the church. It's sad. It's crazy. It, it's hyper-doctrinalizing, dispensationalizing, overly dividing the word of truth. We've been through this, through the Spirit, thank God. Who else takes Scripture out of context like this and makes a whole doctrine out of it? You know anybody else? Obviously, I'm being facetious. You can say his name, it's okay. It's Satan, the great deceiver. Loves to do this, just like he did in Matthew chapter 4. Quoted one verse to Jesus. Three different verses, three different times. One verse. No context. So continue to be on guard for deceptions. Continue to humbly read your own Bible in context, or you too might fall for one of these twisted deceptions in the future that sound really smart, really godly even. At this point, too, I want to bring up another deception created by overly dividing the word of truth. Some Christians teach that repentance was only for the Jews and that believing is for the Gentiles. Jews should repent, but now we're in the church age. Now you just have to believe. And it's another example of overly dividing the word of truth. Similar to the claim that Jesus' words were only for the Jews, but now that we live in the church age, they're no longer for us. But even the Apostle Paul clearly stated repentance and faith were part of his preaching for both Jews and Gentiles, even in the church age. On the board, you should all know this scripture by now. Acts 20, 21 in the NIV, 
I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. This was written after the resurrection during the church, of course, and it's spoken to both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks. So don't buy that lie either that divides the word so much that it excludes important doctrines that remain for us today. All right, so let's get back to our reminder of God's choice of believers on the board. And we're particularly focused on the third point about election, which is that repentance is a heart issue, as is faith in Christ. We are not sin counters. We are saved by grace through faith. So what does repentance look like practically, even dynamically, in real life? And think about this. Are we to suppose it only takes one form for everyone? What does repentance look like practically in real life? And are we to suppose it only takes one form for everyone? Just something to think about as we delve back into our example that um, I'm so glad Pastor shared with us in terms of real life scenario, real life giving the gospel and dealing with situations with different people. So we heard about a fellow believer who was trying to evangelize a homosexual. Uh, We heard that this person uh, openly professed they were homosexual and also that they were humble enough to listen to the gospel, which obviously is wonderful. The question that Pastor discussed with this believer went something like this on the board, which was a poorly formed question. If a homosexual doesn't repent of their sinful lifestyle, and theologically, repentance precedes faith in Christ, then can they be saved? And the problem we've been seeing is that there are multiple bad presuppositions. It's a mistake to presuppose certain things are true without scriptural backing. Almost like jumping the gun. So pastor took this statement in pieces, seeing what scripture says about each part. In this case, Is there clearly stated scripture on the sin of homosexuality? Yes, we know there is. So we know that part of the statement is a true part of the statement. Um, How about does repentance precede saving faith? We know that is true scripturally uh, from all of our studies. However, what's not clearly stated but is subtly implied by this question is this on the board. The bad presupposition is that to satisfy the call for repentance... A person must repent from every sin. And until a person does so, they're unsavable. And that is clearly a doctrine of demons. Jesus called for an attitude of repentance. In other words, change your mind, humble your heart, admit you're a sinner before God. Kind of like Paul said. All should repent towards God and You trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. Jesus called for an attitude of repentance, changing of the mind, a humbling of the heart, and admitting sin before God. And he was saving many people that came to him in humility, admitting their sin. It was the religious people who were imposing some type of a perfect repentance on other people. Kind of like 
That verse says, straining at a gnat while swallowing a camel. That was described to the Pharisees. Strained at the smallest thing, but accepted the biggest, you know, error. So, you might call it hyper-doctrinalizing, etc., but religious people will do that, and we must be careful not to fall into that trap. So, we share the call to repent and believe with unbelievers, and as we do so, we must make sure we don't make repentance something it's not. Don't make repentance something it's not. Morphing it into a doctrine of demons. We also saw that Jesus said in context that it's terribly difficult for a rich person to be saved. But he didn't say it was impossible. In fact, he said it was possible because of God. Turn again to Matthew 19, 21. Jesus said, all things are possible with God, even though it seems hopeless with man. That's kind of the main point of this whole passage. Even though it seems totally hopeless to man, they can't see a way out or a way into heaven for this rich man. The Lord can do all things. Matthew 19, 21. Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished, very astonished, and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So saving any sinner, even those in what appear to be hopeless situations, that's God's specialty. Look at Paul, Saul of Tarsus. If there was somebody that man would have said was impossible to turn around, it would have been him. And yet God has his ways with every single person. He's not going to make everyone believe, but he knows how to reach every single person. And our example of bringing a homosexual to Christ, well, it's a work of God only that knows how to get through to each person that can change someone's heart. The point is God can do it. He changed your heart at one point, right? Regardless of the sin that you were trapped in. So the point I think the Spirit's bringing out is that repentance is a supernatural dynamic that occurs between each person and God. And even that is individual and unique. Repentance is a supernatural dynamic that occurs between each person and God. So we can't play God either. Assume we know what's possible and what's not with a certain individual. On the board, with God all things are possible. Our flesh tells us that we must find a way to be good enough to get into heaven. The Word tells us that Jesus was looking to save sinners. While the latter seems impossible, all we have to do is remember the words of Jesus, with God all things are possible, including saving a homosexual. 
And then on top of this, the Spirit gave us a balance statement on Sunday. He's like, don't get lopsided. We're not saying God will save everyone even if they refuse to repent. All right, we're not going back on all the teaching we've learned the last year and a half. It's a balance. We're not saying God's going to save everyone even if they refuse to repent. The fact that repentance comes before true saving faith is plainly stated in Scripture. So here's a key point from Sunday that was not on the board, but I wanted to put it up here for you regarding humility being a must. The issue is not repentance from every sin, known or unknown, but rather the issue is a dialogue with the Holy Spirit. This came out on Sunday. The issue is not repentance from every sin, known or unknown. The issue is, rather, a dialogue with the Holy Spirit. Some type of surrender in the soul to God. I admit I'm guilty, Lord. I'm not sure about this homosexual thing. I'm not convic convicted about it yet, but I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm guilty. So, you know, I need you to save me. Some type of humble dialogue with the Holy Spirit. That's someone listening to the conviction of the Spirit of Jesus. That's who it is. This also came out on Sunday regarding repentance and salvation, regarding a willingness to turn. Salvation is preceded by a certain decision against one's flesh. I have a friend right now you can keep in prayer. You don't even need to know his name, but he's so steeped in the flesh that I, I, from my viewpoint, it seems impossible that he's ever going to call it wrong. But salvation is preceded. If someone's going to be saved, they have to come to a certain decision against their flesh, uh, against that old sin nature, which is the wellspring or the source of sin in each of us. And it's that decision against one's flesh and towards Jesus Christ, the Savior. So there's got to be a willingness to turn. What is a willingness? Humility. Free will that says, okay, I'm not right about everything. Maybe I am wrong here. There's got to be a willingness to turn. Look at the picture the Lord painted in Mark chapter 8. Go to Mark 8.34. And here's where we see what occurs in the soul of a believer. That again on the board, salvation is preceded by a certain decision against one's flesh. The old sin nature, the wellspring of sin in each of us. And towards Jesus Christ the Savior. Mark 8.34 And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Again, verse 35, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. There's got to be a certain decision against one's own flesh, one's own 
life always. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Jesus isn't talking about an unbeliever citing every sin that he's living in. He's saying that a person must admit he's guilty and unable on his own to please God, repenting from his old life and turning to Christ. This concept also came out on Sunday on the board regarding being born again. Remember, the result of salvation is a change of one's nature, right? The result of salvation, just think about it for a minute. The result of salvation, when you are saved, your nature's changed. You have a new nature. So it's the nature that is under consideration when one repents, not just the sinner produces. It's saying, I don't want that old nature anymore. I want Christ's nature. I want a new nature. They don't know that they're going to get a new nature yet. But you see the attitude towards the natures? Again, the result of salvation is a change in one's nature. So it's the nature that's under consideration when one repents, not just the sin it produces. Receiving the gospel includes an understanding of the need of it. If someone doesn't think they need any good news, why are they going to, you know, they're just going to take it on the side with all the other good news in the world. Receiving the gospel, truly receiving the gospel, includes an understanding of the need of it. The need comes from understanding that sin exists in one's life and that one isn't good enough to earn his way with God. Now, in our example, if a homosexual has been convicted that what they're doing is wrong, then that truth becomes a part of their repentance as a whole between them and God. It really is between them and the Spirit is the point. It really is between them and the Spirit. We can bring certain things to light. We can answer questions about it. But it really is between them and the Spirit if they've been convicted something's wrong or not. True repentance is a person realizing where they stand in the light of God's perfect holiness. And this came out on Sunday too. Uh, I didn't put it on the board, but it's a good way to view it. True repentance is a person realizing where they stand in the light of God's holiness, which is nowhere, right? Hopeless. And so someone, when they finally realize that, that they can't please a perfect God, they should repent. It's an admitting of the truth that there's sin in them and turning away from the idea of it. So let's remember, Scripture tells us that every person is responsible for what they know as well. To whom much is given, much is required. So there's no way to fool God. A person's responsible for what he is aware of. And sometimes we need to leave people be with that too. A person's responsible for what he is aware of, as being right or wrong, for example. So this also came out on Sunday regarding the fairness of God. In order for us to be aware of a sin and repent from it, we must be convicted of it. 
Make sense? How do you, you know, why would you repent of something that you don't think is a sin? There needs to be a faith that it is a sin in the first place before God will hold us accountable to it. So if a person sees that homosexuality, for example, is a sin before God, then they must call it what it is because their conscience demands it now. They're already aware of it, right? Or they already are convicted of it. So they need to call it what it is between them and God. Each person's responsible for what they know, or rather we might say what they're convicted of in their own heart. Each person's responsible for what they're convicted of in their own heart. And this is why repentance and how it works for each person is between each person and the Lord, truly. We have no idea what they're convicted of in their heart, whoever we're talking to. We really don't. We could, we could something might come up, we might say something's wrong, we might be asked if something's wrong, but if they're, you know, if they dismiss that as not true, if they don't believe that it's a problem yet, then God in His grace doesn't demand repentance for that thing because they don't know yet. It's almost like demanding a little child apologize for something I think is totally not a problem or not wrong. So this is where we remember that our job is to pass on the message. We are messengers after all. That's all our job is. And allow the Holy Spirit to convict each person in a supernatural way of repentance and faith. Let him go at it with them in their soul. Let him convict them. We're not, you know, persuading. We're not supposed to be persuading everybody, right? We're not the Holy Spirit convicting people. We're there to pass on the message in grace. And it includes repentance. But our job is not to convict people. Thank God. And the thing that's coming out is I would venture to say God does this slightly differently in every single person's heart. Uniquely, let's just say. Every single person that repents or the way he leads them to repentance is probably slightly different or unique in every single soul. So if that's true, and only God knows what they need to hear and, and what they need to be convicted, leave it to God. You have to leave it to God. So how repentance and faith manifest themselves in each person's soul is totally unique and personal between them and the Lord. Amen? When we accept that as evangelists, we're set free. And our job is to just be that messenger of grace. Answer questions truthfully. That might be part of it. But leave it to the Lord. So on the board, what is repentance? God is looking for a humble attitude of repentance. It's an attitude. It's a perspective that someone needs to adopt an attitude of humility before God, not some perfect confession of sins. He's looking for the attitude of the heart. If an unbeliever doesn't see their specific sin as a sin just yet, then in that moment they are free from being part, or that is free from being part of their repentance. Again, just like a little child that doesn't, honestly doesn't think something's wrong. They're not there yet. 
And so it's between them and the Lord. God looks at the heart. So just think about that as you turn to James 4.17. God looks at the heart. You don't know somebody else's heart. So if in their heart of hearts they don't believe something's wrong, God's not going to, you know, reject them. He wants what they know in their heart to be repented of. Might be a way to put it. They're responsible for what they know. And he's looking for the heart to change, to turn. That's it. So James 4.17, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So if a homosexual honestly, in their heart, thinks there's nothing wrong with it at that point, then let it be. It's between them and the Lord. Do you think the Lord's able to convince them or teach them that it's wrong at the right time for them? Of course he is. So let it be. It's between them and the Lord. And the Lord will handle them with grace if they humbly have that attitude of repentance towards sin and self. The Lord's going to treat them with grace. Just like he treated us with grace, even though we had no clue what was going on when we repented. Very little clue of the big picture. So the Spirit's trying to protect us from false thinking in either direction. Uh, it's a demonic doctrine to say a person who doesn't repent from all sin is unsavable. But it's also a demonic doctrine to say if a person is convicted of this infamous, specifically the old sin nature, and refuses to repent, that God will still save that person. That's wrong. This is where we got into the whole last year and a half. What is true saving faith? How does that come about in a soul? Well, it starts with repentance. If someone doesn't think anything's wrong, or they need to be fixed, they're not going to turn to somebody to save their life. If someone doesn't think they're dying, they're not going to turn to somebody to save their life. And that's why repentance is so crucial. So both of these things are false doctrines that are loosely based on Scripture, but they're twisted perversions of truth. On the board, the gospel truth. If a person arrives at the conclusion that they are a sinner, not even understanding every sin, the Holy Spirit will convict them of their need to repent. God grants repentance after all. Furthermore, He will convict them of their need for a Savior. And with God, all things are possible. Awesome. So it's not our job to convince people. It's our job to share the truth. And even if we see a difficult situation, it could be an extremely difficult situation that someone is living in, that is heartbreaking even, our job is to trust that the Lord can work out any situation in someone's soul. In a way, our job is to sit back and smile and be like, wow, this is, this is impossible. I can't see the way this is possibly going to work. And our job is to sit back and trust God that he can work this out and look forward to seeing him do it. Hopefully he gives us a glimpse of it. But we know he can do it, right? So again, on the board, with God, all things are possible. Are we to postulate that a person who doesn't repent of something like homosexuality is unsavable? May it never be. We must never make that kind of a leap. 
<clears throat> Jesus came for sinners, each and every one of us. Thank God. On the board, in Mark 2.17, in hearing this, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. All things are possible with God. So we've been learning practically how repentance works, or might work. Maybe different in every situation. What is a repentant heart? Since no man knows every sin, commission and omission, it's impossible for him to repent from every sin. God saves the willing, the humble, the repentant. It's true. Thank God. However, much of our conviction regarding sin arrives after salvation, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of God and we learn what sin really is and all the things that God considers sin. But thank God we've repented at that point, right? We've turned to God and admitted we're guilty and admitted we need His Son. And so God's grace takes over in that person's life. So big picture as we begin to close, remember the gospel means the good news. The minute it ceases to be good news, then we're getting in the way of the simple call to repentance and trusting faith in Christ. You see, repentance can be a hard conversation sometimes, right? If you have to bring up sin in someone's life, they don't want to hear it many times. But you can bring it up the right way. And we're told to bring it up if it's necessary. Um, it's got to remain, the big package, the big picture, has to remain good news. If it's not, something's wrong with our presentation. So the point that came out, uh, I was having a discussion with Jeremy on Sunday, actually, after Sunday service. You can tell someone they're a sinner and do it in love. You can tell someone they're a sinner and do it in love. Some people don't want to hear that they're sinners, but we can have that discussion with love in our hearts for them. You know? So we're the ones that make the mistake or get in the way if a call to repentance is a um, harsh thing. Even that is a, is a call to grace. You know? It's like, just admit, just admit it. Why are you fighting against this thing? Go to them in love. Talk about your own sin if you have to and what God saved you from. But it should always be part of the good news. So again, on the board, the minute it ceases to be good news, then we are getting in the way of the simple call to repentance and trusting faith in Christ. On the board, sharing the gospel in love. We are told to do all things in love. Let's not stray away from sharing the proper heart. And if we don't have the proper heart at the time we're dealing with someone, well, you know what? We need to say a quick prayer and recalibrate ourselves. Where, where, where am I coming from? What position am I coming from? Is it from grace or is it from legalism or anger or something? Because if it's not from grace, if it's not done in love, then you might want to stop. Right? 
We're told to do all things in love. Let's not stray from sharing the proper heart while discussing the tough realities of the sin nature. It's a tough reality. People, don't, people are arrogant, right? They don't want to admit they're guilty or they're a sinner. So it's a tough reality. But if we do it in love, it can be received. So turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 13 as we close. And to some of you, this might seem to be an oxymoron, the point on the board. You know, discussing the tough realities of the sin nature, but doing it in love. How do I do that? By faith, maybe? Look at 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Doesn't that seem like an oxymoron? At least to my human mind, it does. All right, so you want me to be strong. You want me to stand firm in the faith and act like a man and be alert. You saw that. These are all kind of tough things, so to speak. And then right after it, let all that you do be done in love. Do all these things, being on the alert, standing firm in the faith, acting like men, being strong. Do all these things in love. So it's possible, apparently, right? Think of the love of a good father. It can be stern, but truly be love. In fact, sometimes because a father is stern, his love is proven and revealed. Even though the child doesn't like it, he knows the father is doing it to love and protect him. So we, as evangelists, we can say things in love and truth. And we'll close with this. Scripture says, Jesus came and manifested grace and truth. Jesus came and manifested in a person, grace and truth. And what is grace? Grace is simply love in action, right? So Jesus came in love and truth. Everything he did was in love and truth. Even his harsh speak to the Pharisees was in love. So it must be possible to live in love, to deliver a message in love, to tell the truth, even of tough realities, with love. Jesus didn't compromise. He always told the truth and always in love at the same time. So we can follow his example. So one more read of 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for your perfect wisdom, the wisdom of your word and your Holy Spirit. And we ask that you keep us humble that you help us humbly apply these things, bring them out to a lost and dying world that needs love and truth so desperately. And we know, Father, that you can do all things. All things are possible with you. We thank you for the privilege and opportunity of being a part of your great commission, of being a part of someone's salvation, and yet all the responsibility and conviction depends upon you. Thank you, Father, for all 
you do for us and all you allow us to participate in. We ask that you bless us all as we go. It's in Christ's precious name we pray by the power of your spirit. Amen. Amen. Amen.